0: As we begin a new year here together, Zechariah 4, verse 1 says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as one who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I'm looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are beside it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, verse eight, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, and his hand shall also finish it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And Father, we humbly ask for the grace and help of your spirit as always as we continue now to worship by giving our heart, our mind, our soul and spirit to be attentive to the voice of what your spirit would say to us through the word of God. So Lord, please bless your word and give us each an ear to hear this day what you have in store through it. And we ask together expectantly in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen, you may be seated. You know, as we begin this morning and you perhaps consider where you're at in life right now, let me put some images in your mind to just kind of create a visual picture to think through. The first one would be a stalled out car, where it is completely stalled out and you just cannot seem to get it going again. The second image, let me put in your mind, is how about being stuck in a rut, And when you're stuck in a rut, that refers to being trapped in the same spot for an extended period of time, usually doing the same thing. There is no change. Typically, you become very bored and you lose enthusiasm and you lose interest. Here's a third image. How about a severely dead car battery? And no matter what you do, you just cannot seem to get the thing jump-started. Or perhaps a fourth picture. How about being trapped in some way where there is no way out, there is just no way forward, and it seems like it's just a lost cause without any hope of change, of things possibly ever getting better. Let me ask this morning with those images in your mind, is it possible any of those images or word pictures could describe your spiritual life, like a stalled-out car being stuck in a rut, maybe feeling like it's just a dead battery, you can't get things jump-started spiritually, or maybe you just feel trapped in some way of your spiritual life and it seems like there is just no possible hope for anything ever getting better in this area or struggle of my spiritual life. Or maybe that describes just your circumstances right now in life. Like a car that's stalled out or like just being stuck in a rut for an extended period or maybe that you're trapped and it just seems there's no way forward and you can't possibly envision how because it seems so hopeless that things could ever change for the better. That may even just be the way that your thoughts are wrestling in your mind right now or maybe the way that you feel within and I want to say this morning if that would be the case for any of you, you're not alone. There are plenty through human history who have dealt with that same thing, and here in the Word of God, we find that going on. We find the Word of the Lord to help with overcoming that kind of struggle, even as one of the Lord's servants. Now, since we've not been going through the book of Zechariah, if you'll give me a moment to develop what we're understanding in context here. The prophet Zechariah was used to speak messages from the Lord to God's people In a time period after what was referred to as the captivity if you remember from the old testament after 70 years being under god's circumstantial discipline for disobeying the word of the lord where israel had then spent 70 years outside of god's blessing in the foreign land of babylon after the end of that time period, God stirred the hearts of his people. He opened doors for a new work of restoration spiritually. And God called his people to realign their lives. With God's true intention for them and he asked them to return back to their homeland remember of Jerusalem where they had been put out of in captivity for 70 years and to go back to the homeland to restore and rebuild the temple of God to go back to Jerusalem where both God's city and God's temple lay in ruins where the enemy had come in and destroyed things and ravaged things Uh, and left everything burnt up and damaged, that God sent forth a call to return, to return to his work, to return to his will, to his true intention for the people's lives, and to go back and rebuild the temple and restore the worship system as it once was. Now, when God did that, like with all new things, how fitting is that with New Year's, Like with all new things, the novelty of that stirred up lots of passion and excitement at first. And though it was only a small group that went back, they went back with enthusiasm. But then when reality set in and the daily hard work of moving the rubble and working through the process and facing major obstacles and working through things and realizing it was not going to just happen overnight... And then add into that, they began to endure spiritual opposition from enemies, and they were opposing them, and it wasn't as easy as it could be, and people were trying to discourage them and stop them and hassle them. And then as a result of that, they began to get a little bit distracted. And as is often the case when new things begin, the excitement of novelty wore off. And the people got discouraged and they got distracted then even doing other things. And in due time, disappointment set in, apathy sent in, and eventually what happened is they completely abandoned God's work. They completely basically abandoned the very thing that God had called them first to. Ezra chapter 5 says it this way, and it's the context of our prophecy. The work on the house of God at Jerusalem ceased. That is, it stopped, and it came to a standstill. Now, that's a very common thing. So oftentimes, God moves in a way or something happens, and just like in everything else in life, right, you, you get the new Christmas gift, and the novelty wears off real quick. You get the new, you know, thing, you get the new, uh, you know, house or the new car or the new boat or the new toy, or, and, and then it's great, but then the novelty wears off. You get the new job, and every new job's great at first, but then the novelty wears off. Well, look, the same thing happens in spiritual matters as well. So often as Christians, we talk about like the honeymoon phase of when we first got saved, and we understand what we mean by that, you know, all the passion and excitement, and then it's like, oh, man, but then you start realizing spiritual maturity is a little bit different than... And, and but that—that's because tends to be a thing that happens, and that happens in ministry and embracing God's call and the work of the Lord as well. That the novelty kind of wears off over time. It's just a a reality that you recognize in maturity. I mean, I, I've seen that reality firsthand, having you know planted two churches now in Pennsylvania and here as well. I remember when we came back here and we started the the Bible study and and. You know, we had the Bible study going for a number of months, and then eventually we came to the decision to, you know, move the family to embrace God's call. We turned the church in York over and we moved down here as a family and moved down here. And, and then when we moved down here, obviously we didn't move down here to keep a Bible study going. We moved down here to move forward with a church plant. And so we, you know, sought some different I- you know, ideas and possible open doors, found a location to hold a Sunday morning service. The Bible study at that time was running about, I'd say maybe regularly, we had about 30 or so people coming out to an evening Bible study for the past, you know, whatever it was. It started in September, we moved down here in June, so about 10 months, so driving back and forth while we was still pastoring in York. And we finally started a Sunday morning service with this group of about 30 people faithfully attending a Bible study. The first Sunday morning service, there was 127 people there. I was like, man, oh, man, where did all these people come from? And, of course, other people were very excited. Oh, man, this is great. This is going to explode. The next Calvary Chapel, man, oh, this is going to explode. But I'm a little bit more of, my wife calls me a pessimist. I call it a realist. And the reality is here we are 11 years later. The church is smaller now than it was the first Sunday it started. Welcome to reality. The novelty wears off amazing, the enthusiasm and the excitement, just, oh, something new and this and that, and that just, at times, the novelty wears off, and sometimes it's just the novelty of something new. You know, oftentimes, you'll start a new thing, start a new ministry, and all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people get excited, and they come to it, and then you know, the novelty wears off, and then you kind of just kind of settle into maybe more of a core group of people, and look, I'm not saying that for anything other than to just say that it's just kind of a reality. It happens at times and it's just human nature, and it takes place in our spiritual lives as well, whether it's our walk with the Lord or whether it's some ministry that's taking place. Well, it has been over a 15 year period now since the work on the temple has ceased. Things have sat like a stalled out car. For over a 15 year period, since they had walked away from the job site And it seemed like there was no way forward, like that temple thing was kind of a lost cause, the rebuilding of it. The minds and the hearts of the people had kind of lost sense of purpose. They had lost interest in it. They had become preoccupied in their worldly affairs. And it's at this point, about 15 plus years after the work has ceased, that God raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And God puts the word of the Lord into their mouths for the sake of his people. And to give you the best sense, if I could, of what was happening before we just move through our verses here, of what God's word was to his people during this time, and it should be very easy to do, if you'll turn back just a few pages to your left to the book of Haggai, it's right before Zechariah, so you shouldn't get lost here. Just go a few pages. Once you hit Zechariah 1, the next page should be Haggai. The prophet Haggai was ministering during this time as well. He spoke about two months before Zechariah. The temple work has ceased. Look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, and I just want to let God's word speak for itself to give you the clear context of what the basis of all this really was. We'll trust God's word to say what he wants to say to us. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came By Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, there's our guy in our text, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. These were the two men, kind of leading, spearheading uh, the rebuilding of the temple, who had watched it cease and sit dormant for 15 years. Joshua and Zerubbabel, and here was the word of the Lord through Haggai. Thus speaks the Lord of Hosts. This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So they had walked off the job site, things were sitting dormant for 15 years, and whenever it was talked about, basically God's people just made the excuse to justify their spiritual apathy by just saying, hey, it's just not God's timing, that's all. If it was God's timing, we would be all about that, but it just that's why we're not doing that anymore. It's just not God's timing right now. And so they were basically justifying their lack of interest and involvement in spiritual things by making the excuse, just saying, it's just not God's time right now. Now, I know we never do that, but they were. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Look, look how God speaks, is it time It's not time for God's stuff. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Where do you think all those temple building materials went? Oh, all that good paneling we got. What are we going to do with that? (laughs) Don't want to leave it there rotten on the job site at the temple, right? Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns those wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord, again, verse 7, consider your ways. So notice, it's very evident the people had become somewhat self-focused and self-indulgent they had become preoccupied paneling their own houses and making everything in their own personal possessions, you know, kind of nicer and enjoying luxury and, and kind of, you know, into their own lives personally to a degree where they were neglecting God's work, but they were very preoccupied with building their mm-hmm. own fortress to a sense. And they had become self-focused and self-indulgent. And basically God just says, how's that working for you? And God says two times Consider your ways. You're taking your ways now instead of my ways. Consider your ways. How's that working for you? And he describes there in verse 6 a very clear continuous picture of basically being very unsatisfied. He says, you know, you're sewing, you're eating, you're drinking, you're clothing yourselves, you're earning plenty of money, but he says, it seems like you're pretty unfulfilled, though. Seems like that, that every time you do that, it's somehow just it's just all falling through the cracks and it's never enough and you're always still longing for more because they were indulging the things of the world, but they were in some ways not indulging the things that God had for them. So God challenges them to change, to re-engage in what they once did for God. Look what he says, verse 8. He says, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it. And be glorified, says the Lord. So he calls them back to what they were once doing before, to build the temple of God. Now, for you and I, the Bible tells us that our temple is is our body, that we, as the people of God now, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, and we become the temple of the Lord. And so our lives, to a degree, are the temple of the Lord that we should be seeking to build and put wood upon the fire. And and God says, build the temple that I notice may take pleasure and be glorified. God says, get back to what you were once doing. Focus again on the pleasure of God, seeking to please God, that God would be glorified above everything else that you do in your life. He says, verse 9, you look for much, but indeed it came to little. When you brought it home, God says, I'm the one that blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. Now, notice verse 11. God says, for I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Interesting. God saw them so distracted and preoccupied, God said, I'm the one that dried things up. God said, I purposely did it. Why? Because he was wanting to be punitive and punish them. The main reason God did it was just to get their attention, to be able to get them to realize that they were on the wrong track, and no matter how much they grinded and put in and all that effort and energy, and God said, I'm the one that put the cease on it. I'm, I'm the one that did that purposely because I was trying to get your attention, he says, because of your misaligned priorities. The idea is spiritually. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant, look, verse 12, good thing they obeyed, the voice of the Lord their God. Always good, you know, revivals happening when God's people start obeying the voice of the Lord. As the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the presence of the Lord, and Haggai the Lord's messenger spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the high priest, Joshua, and the spirit of all the people, and they came, verse 14, and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So God stirred the hearts of the people. He brought spiritual revival and renewal. They returned back to reengaging in what God's best for them was once again. They obeyed the voice of the Lord, and God said, look, I am with you. Get back to this. Verse 1 of chapter 2, look at a few more verses, then we're going to go to Zechariah. He says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So here's a second prophetic utterance, second message from the Lord. Speak to Zerubbabel. This is our discouraged guy we'll see in Zechariah 4. To the governor of Judah and to Joshua, the high priest, and to all the people saying, who is left among you, verse 3 of chapter 2, who saw this temple in its former glory? That would be the days of Solomon. You remember how great that temple was. And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I, emphasis, am with you, says the Lord. And according to that which I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. In other words, God was encouraging the people and the leaders not to be paralyzed by their past because this was part of what the problem was. They were comparing the prior work of the Lord to the prior days of Solomon's temple and the glory of Solomon's temple. Oh, and you remember how great that was? That thing was huge, man. And it was pumping, and it was gold and silver, and and, I mean, look at this little thing now. And and, and basically, they were so preoccupied with idolizing and comparison to how things once were, they were feeling discouraged and discontent with their current state. And because they were so consumed with comparison of how things once were in a prior time spiritually they were basically causing their own stumbling block because it made them discontent with their current status and that can be a real challenge and God was speaking to that and he was trying to help them to look past what it looked like circumstantially as they were making comparisons and oh the former temple this thing and so on and so forth and God says to them look I'm with you, and my spirit is just as much with you in this generation and in this time as it was then. So, stop talking about the glory days, God would say. God would say, stop talking. I'm the same God who changes not, God's saying. I'm still with you. The power of my spirit is just as much capable to do in this time as it was in that prior time. Now, turn with me back over to Zechariah 4, again, a few pages back to your right, If you didn't hold your finger there. And in our text here, about a month after Haggai prophesied these initial things to the people over the stalled out temple work and their spiritual apathy, Zechariah begins to be stirred by the Spirit of God to give messages as well. And with Zechariah, God kept giving Zechariah visions. He would show him a vision, and that vision had a word picture, an idiom, that would show him what was happening behind the earthly circumstances. And what God was trying to show Zachariah is, look, realize, despite what you're seeing with your eyes and what it looks like circumstantially, there is more going on behind the scenes. And that's often an important lesson for all of us to learn, that we look at things circumstantially, and we have to realize there's always more going on behind the scenes that God is doing no matter what things may or may not look like circumstantially. Now, we already saw one clear problem pointed out by God in Haggai was the people were distracted by selfish and worldly pursuits, and so they're facing the difficulty of spiritual apathy and trying to overcome spiritual apathy and lack of interest and uh, the, the wrestling of that. Well, Zechariah's fourth vision, which comes to him in chapter 3, verse 1, indicates that another problem wasn't just spiritual apathy, but also spiritual or satanic opposition. Zechariah 3.1 says, he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand opposing him. So another thing that Zechariah was able to see, we're not just battling spiritual apathy, we're also battling satanic opposition. And there is Satan's effort to clearly oppose what the will of the Lord was in that situation. Now, spiritual apathy and spiritual uh, warfare had caused tremendous discouragement in the lives of God's people, and particularly Zerubbabel, one of the leaders and the servants of the Lord. So at this time, the people of God and Joshua and Zerubbabel, who were leading the rebuilding that had stalled out, they were extremely discouraged and felt incredibly defeated. And perhaps, I don't know this morning, a combination of both spiritual apathy that may have settled into your life as well as satanic opposition has been the perfect combination to cause, to a degree, getting you or I into a rut. A rut spiritually, where things kind of stall out in some way, and we become discouraged, or we feel defeated, and and it's hard to envision how could you possibly get out of this rut? How could you get things moving forward again? How can you possibly get beyond this or get things jump-started and back on the right road? Well, look, it is with that backdrop that God brings this message, chapter 4 of encouragement and insight to Zerubbabel, who's watched everything come to a grinding halt and sit stalled out for 15 years, not 15 days, 15 years He's watched it sit at a standstill, and you have to wonder if this guy is not thinking, is it really possible to get out of that kind of a rut? I mean, this is more like a grave now, not a rut. And you have to wonder if he's in his mind thinking, is it really possible to get past this, to go forward, to get things moving in a right direction? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the angel who talked with me, Zachariah says, he came and awakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. So, Zechariah the prophet, who's been receiving these supernatural visions, coupled with corresponding messages to proclaim the word of the Lord, this chapter 4 now becomes the fifth vision that he receives. And Zechariah acknowledges openly in verse 1 there, that the angel had to awaken him to make him to be alert to receive this very vision and also the message that went with it. You know, our earthly bodies are very frail, yet God's supernatural power works through these frail human vessels. And so I don't know, perhaps due to all these supernatural visions that Zechariah kept receiving from the Lord and then human I mean then messages to convey connected to the visions, maybe his human flesh is just weakened and depleted. And the spirit of God has done so many powerful things that maybe he just, his just, human body is just wiped or perhaps maybe he's just legitimately tired from busyness and responsibilities. Either way, he's either sleeping here at night in verse one or he's dozed off into a resting condition. But it's on this occasion that the angel comes and awakens him and stirs him out of a slumbering condition. He says there in verse one, the angel came and he wakened me, he woke me up as a man who's wakened out of a sleep. Why? Because he needed to be alert in order to see what God wanted him to see and also to hear what God wanted him to hear. And look, by way of application, sometimes when the Lord wants us to see something important or sometimes in life when he wants us to hear something vital, it is a necessary part of God's process to wake us up first. Sometimes God needs to stir us to awaken us to do something to really stir up our life or stir up our nest in a way whereby he gets our full attention and makes us incredibly alert and fully focused so that we're awake to hear what he wants to see or to say to us. Romans 13 says, Understand that now is the time to awake out of sleep. Ephesians 5, writing to the church there, Paul said to the Ephesian church, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Paul writing to the Thessalonian church, seems this happens in lots of churches, 1 Thessalonians 5, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. You know, I don't know, but perhaps 2023 for all of us to some degree maybe is a year for us to wake up spiritually. Maybe to some degree, God is saying, look, here's my New Year's resolution. Wake up spiritually. Wake up spiritually again. Time is short. Things are real. What's eternal matters most. Verse 2, he goes on to say what happened after he was awakened. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, verse 2, I'm looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. And then two olive trees are by it, one on the right hand of the bowl and the other on its left. So, Zachariah is seeing a vision here of the seven-branched lampstand made of gold that was originally created as one of the primary pieces of furniture, remember, in the tabernacle that God established as the first worship system. The tabernacle, remember, was that first tent-like structure that as they were journeying through the wilderness, God commanded them to set up as a location for worship for the people of God. And as they set up the tabernacle, it was there, remember, in the tabernacle, that God manifested his presence in what they would refer to as the house of the Lord. It was there that they atoned for sin through blood sacrifices, Is where the priests would minister and perform their ministry functions, and the people would assemble as their gathering place to be together as God's people for times of worship. And inside of that tent, remember, was a solid gold lampstand with seven branches. Very similar, if you can see, we kind of have a a model of one of those up here as a decoration in our church. And the lampstand, remember, was inside of the tent. The tent didn't have windows. So, it was the sole source of light burning inside of the tent continuously, and it was a oil-based lampstand. And so, the priests and the ministers in God's house, it was their responsibility to routinely trim the wicks and to keep refilling it with oil so that it kept burning continually so that they could worship and do the work of the Lord in the light of the Lord. And so that lampstand was there, and it was necessary to keep it lit, constantly burning to worship, yet it depended upon the priest's efforts to keep it burning. And they had to continually fill it with oil and trim the wicks, to keep it always constantly burning. Well, what Zechariah now gets a vision of here in verses two and three is basically something uniquely different. This is like an upgraded version of the golden lampstand. He now sees that same golden lampstand in God's house, but it's got a bowl or a reservoir above it. And then there are seven pipes coming out of that that are going down and feeding oil into the seven different lampstands And that bowl was being filled with oil, basically by two olive trees, which are above it, dripping oil into the receptacle or the reservoir so that it can then constantly keep feeding the lamp. So the vessel was continually filled again and again, and the seven pipes put oil into the lamps so that it kept on burning and the fire remained constantly lit. And it never went out. Now, this was special, because what he's seeing now is a lampstand that has a continuous oil source to sustain it, and it does not depend on any human effort to keep burning. It does not require any human effort whatsoever. It depended on no work of man to keep the fire going. It required no human effort to keep tending the lamps or filling the oil. It was being supernaturally supplied by a source that was constantly bringing more oil without the oil ever running out. It was God supplying the ongoing oil to keep it burning, and so the lamp remained on fire. It kept constantly burning with an endless power source because it was supplied supernaturally with the oil it was receiving. Now, what an incredible picture, because we know, as Bible students that oil in the Bible is symbolic of the Holy Spirit's work. And no doubt God is conveying here how he is supplying ongoing power that's needed by his spirit through a supernatural source. That's the vision here. As the oil above was being supernaturally supplied by God and it was keeping constant power going to that lampstand. You know, it's very interesting because Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit's work Jesus spoke of us as Christians being endued or imparted with power from on high or above through what he referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And how from above, as Christians, we can receive power from the Lord. Well, as Zachariah sees this, verse 4, he says, I answered and spoke to the angel, who talked to me, saying, what are these, my Lord? In other words, what, what's the meaning of this vision? It's not that he didn't understand the vision, what it it was picturing, but he said, what does this mean, the idea is? And the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, very wise servant of the Lord, no. (laughs) I mean, don't you appreciate the humility? That is a a genuine servant of the Lord there. He says, no, I don't understand everything. Quite honestly, I'll just be real candid. I have no clue what that represents. (laughs) I can see what's going on there. But I, I don't know, what's the meaning of this? Unless you give me the message, Lord, I, I don't, I got nothing here. Unless you give me the message, I have no clue what you're trying, again, a wise servant of the Lord always humbly acknowledges, uh, they don't understand. And it's humility often that gives us the grace of God to receive and see things and do things for the Lord. He's, I need some clarity, Lord, what's the message behind that? What are you trying to say through this image? Verse six, here's what God was trying to say through that picture. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, to that discouraged, defeated servant of the Lord. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This vision was a word picture for God's servant to encourage him. Again, as I said, remember Zerubbabel and Joshua, these were God's two servants who were kind of pioneering and and leading the rebuilding process of the temple that had stalled out. And at this point, Zerubbabel is a representation of any servant of God who's very discouraged, who is very defeated at this time. And it seemed to get what God wanted done was just absolutely impossible at this stage from the perspective of Zerubbabel. To experience what God desired to be brought to pass didn't seem even like a reality. And here's why. There was just too many obstacles at this point. I mean, there was just too many evident obstacles. There's just too many obstacles now. It's been 15 years and the people took all the paneling and fixed their own houses and, and, and no one seems even interested in that anymore. And, and it had been so long without change or any difference or progress and a spirit of apathy then set in. And the people had lost enthusiasm and interest wasn't even there anymore. And then on top of it, Satan's work of opposition had brought so much ruin to the given situation. I mean, the work of Satan had ruined so much of what once was a good thing. And he started feeling no doubt like, hey, this started as a rut. But as I said before, this is like a grave now, man. I mean, how, how is that even a, a reality? There is no way forward. This is like a lost cause with no change for better. And Zerubbabel has got to be thinking to himself, even if it, God, how in the, I could never do that. Even me and Joshua together could never get that to take place in some way. And so the picture here is Zerubbabel, this very discouraged, defeated servant of the Lord. And here is the word of the Lord to a discouraged, defeated heart of one of God's people he says, this is the word for that discouraged heart. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So God's word, it's not by might, says the Lord. That word might speaks of collective effort. It's a term that's often translated on other occasions, armies. So what God is saying, look, Zerubbabel, it's not going to be by you rallying the troops. I'm telling you in advance, it's not going to happen by you putting together the best spiritual pep rally to get God's work going. If you just get the right music and you you get things going and and have like your best high school pep rally spiritually and get people emotionally charged, you can do that. But the emotion is going to diminish as soon as they walk out the door. And so he says, it's, it's not going to come by rallying the troops and getting the army psyched up and stirring human enthusiasm. We're raising lots of support and raising lots of, So that's it. If we could just amass and, and, and raise up, then we could win the battle. Look, oftentimes in the Old Testament, did Israel not most oftentimes win battles with small armies and minimal resources? And a lot of times God would do that purposely, Remember? He would actually make it unlikely like that so they would know the battle belonged to the Lord. And look, this morning, don't think that God is limited or reliant upon human eagerness to get things done. He he really is not. And don't think that if you could just get sufficient earthly resources to rally the troops or bring things to pass, I tell you, God truly, he does not need a superb program to accomplish what he wants to do. He really doesn't. He's shown through human history, he can do what he wants to do when there's a yieldedness in human hearts and when it's his will to accomplish. So he says, Look, It's not going to be by armies, by might, nor as he says, is it going to be by power, says the Lord. That speaks of human strength or effort. In other words, it's not going to come to pass. It's not going to succeed by human skill or human ingenuity. It's not gonna be Zerubbabel by your talent, or your efforts, or your energy, or because you can recruit people with great, it's not gonna be dependent upon fleshly abilities to contribute it. Again, does God's word does not show us from Old Testament to New Testament that oftentimes God does his work purposely using what? Human weakness, not strength. God purposely uses human inadequacy, rather than human skill, human insufficiency, rather than those who are greatly prepared in some way otherwise. In other words, he says, that that's not necessary. But how would it come to pass? He says, God, it will come to pass by my spirit, says the Lord. That is by supernatural power of an almighty God working miraculously. The spirit of God would accomplish God's work and bring about what God wanted, would bring about God's will, by God's power. Look this morning, despite your present conditions, despite how he felt in his present condition, Zerubbabel needed to hear from the Lord. Despite what things looked like, the work of God in his life, in the people of God's life could still come to pass and happen, and God was still able to work. It didn't matter what the circumstances were. Victory and triumph were always still possible. Change could still come. It could still come. Things could still happen. Yet, here's the key it would only come God's way. It's the only way it would come, by God Himself accomplishing it. What does Psalm 127 say? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Galatians chapter 3 says to all of us as Christians Are you and I so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now going to complete things in the flesh? We first got started, we knew we needed the power of the Holy Spirit, but then we almost wisen up and think somehow that oh, we got this now, Lord. I, I just your spirit can go help somebody else. And we try and flesh things out and wonder why we're frustrated and things aren't going the way that God desires them to. Look, God's way of most clearly working is defined really in the words of Jesus, John 6:63. 6, Jesus said, "It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing." Again, Jesus draws attention that it's the power of the Spirit. That's the way of victory, of overcoming, of seeing something differently. We have to believe and dependently rely upon the Holy Spirit's work. And look, this, folks, is such a key to the spiritual life and understanding how to overcome in matters of the Christian life. It's not striving in fleshly efforts, It's not trying harder or or, or forcing it more, but learning how through faith and prayer to become reliant upon God's spirit to work in God's way. And in such a way that it is evident that we just yielded and humbly acknowledged, Lord, unless you supernaturally work by your almighty power, it's never gonna work. But what does the Bible tell us? There is nothing too hard for the Lord. The Bible tells us with God, nothing is impossible. When God wants to bring things to pass, it's never going to come through human cleverness or efforts or skill in such a way whereby man thinks that he did it. Or in some way, man gets the credit for it. And look, can we do things apart from God's help? Absolutely. People build businesses, we can do certain things in the flesh, but when God truly does something, there is no earthly explanation. There is no human... Indi- How do I... It had to be God. That just had to be God. There's no other way. And that's the way that God intends to work, by His Spirit. The way God truly works is through supernatural enablement of His Spirit, where it's evident that God did it. And look, that's a difficult lesson for all of us to learn in our spiritual lives. I'll be the first to admit it. It's a lesson we have to learn in our Christian walk, right? As we start continuing to walk with the Lord, we realize, man, I, I have to walk in the Spirit so I don't gratify the lust of the flesh. I can't just try and just get over these sins in my life. No, i got to learn how to walk in the Spirit so that I don't gratify the lust of the flesh. And we realize that it's only by the Holy Spirit that we can change and grow and overcome sins and struggles in our lives, that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to defeat sin. You can't just buckle down and get disciplined. That'll work for a while. But that we need the power of the Spirit to change in our lives. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome struggles that we all go through in our lives that routinely defeat us. There are all kinds of struggles that defeat you and defeat me and things that become obstacles and hindrances and mountains and things. And how do you overcome Mental struggles and emotional struggles and and you know just circumstance. How do you? Not by striving harder. It's not going to work. We can't fix so many things. What we need is dependence upon the power. Of the spirit and even as it pertains to doing the work of the lord as they were trying to rebuild this temple and any work that we do for the lord as he privileges us to serve him in 2023 look we need to realize doing the work of the lord in a way that becomes fruitful and effective the only way it becomes fruitful and effective is not by greater might or finding more human skill or talent or ideas is by the power of the spirit of the lord That's the only way genuine spiritual effectiveness comes to pass as we work for the Lord and serve him in the ways that we all get to at times. Well, look at verse 7, what God says. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, a flat land. So notice, the mountainous obstacles standing in the way, and it was like a mountainous obstacle, right? Circumstantially, mentally. Emotionally, spiritually, I mean, he is defeated and discouraged. No one's interested. There's so much, you know, just of a mess in front of him. I mean, it's like a big mountainous obstacle. He says, Oh, notice, not just a mountain, he calls it a great mountain. And if I can ask you to consider again, what is a mountain? Well, a mountain is something that you can't get past. A mountain is one of those kind of things that you say, There's no way to get over this. And this was something that was like an obstacle. There was no way forward. They can't get past it. They can't get over it. It was an insurmountable obstacle. That's what Zerubbabel's facing. Yet when God would work by the supernatural power of his spirit, what does it say would happen? That great mountain would become like a a plane. God would remove the obstacle supernaturally. The hindrance, God was able to eliminate it supernaturally. That's how it was eliminated not by chipping away at it, not by trying, by letting God in humble dependency know unless you move the obstacle, God, that's the only way. And here, God says, that great mountain, I'm going to move it. By the power of my spirit, I can move it, and make a smooth path forward, doing it in loving help for this weak, helpless human servant. Look, this morning, is there some mountain in front of you? Is there something in your life that you can't get past? And I just can't get past this. Is there something in your life that you say, I just can't get over this? I, I can't. I just don't see any hope of ever getting past this, of ever getting over this, a truly insurmountable obstacle, and there is no way forward. Look, can I remind you that we do serve a mountain-moving God? We do. Jesus himself wanted to draw our attention to that, that in humble dependency that we would always be open to such. Matthew 17, Jesus said, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move And nothing will be impossible for you. Individually, things are impossible for us, but the Bible says, with God, key word is with, together with God, nothing will be impossible. And to recognize that by God's Spirit's power, that exceeds human weakness and inability. And God would remove that obstacle from his servant to fulfill his plan for his servant and what was best for his servant. And notice verse 7 says, and he shall bring forth the capstone. That was the finishing stone that they put on top of a a temple as they would build, the last one. And doing such, shouting grace, grace, grace. To it. So the celebration would come of God having done this, and God would bring it to pass as Zerubbabel kept walking forward in faith, recognizing God's going to work by his power to deal with the insurmountable obstacle and get things going forward. But the way it would happen, again, please notice in verse 7, the way it would happen, it would be a testimony that it was all a work of what? God's grace. Because as it took place and everyone recognized, no person brought that to pass. It wasn't something someone said. It was not something someone did. The only way that happened was the grace of God. Man, God's gracious. The only way something like that could have happened is by the grace of God. Nobody earned it. Nobody achieved it. Nobody recognized anything other than this did not happen because we made it happen or we deserved it or we achieved it. This only happened because God was kind and God graciously intervened and God did something supernaturally by the power of his spirit. And he did this and to him be the glory that they would say, grace, (laughs) can you imagine this? God's grace did this. And that was that recognition, God God got all the glory. And look, this morning, no matter how it looks or how it's been or whatever the obstacles or how defeated you are, I tell you, the grace of God's kindness can still orchestrate something marvelous. He can. He's done it many times in the past. He can remove a mountain that stands in the way, but it happens, listen, it happens how? Not by might nor by any human power, but by the Spirit of God of the Lord. It's by the supernatural power of God's Spirit, which means this morning that we need to come to a place when we find ourselves like this, where we humbly come before the Lord and say, Lord, I tap out. There's just no way, Lord. Can't get past this, can't get over this, it's stalled out, It's there's a mountain, Lord. There's just no way. But Lord, I do believe that you have supernatural power that exceeds any human limitation, and that we cry out to the Lord in hunger for that reality. You know, Jesus said, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's what we need to do to bring our hearts before the Lord and say, Lord, from on high, would you pour out the power of your spirit in our lives, in our family, in our situation, in our congregation, that we might receive your supernatural power to see what you want to come to pass. Let's stand together and let